That was a very positive tune to kick things off. Um, so what's the point of having that? Well, did it sound similar to any famous songs, perhaps? Wait, I'll give you a hint. Think of an old classic film and a recent cover that everyone fell in love with. Oh, I'm struggling with this. What film was this? How old was this film? Think 1930s, Sam. Oh, I have no clue then. I'm not as old as you are. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for that. It is actually a reference to the song Over the Rainbow, originally sung by Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz, but specifically the cover version on ukulele by Israel Kamaka Wiwole. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I say reference because we actually couldn't afford either version. And what you've just heard is a very carefully constructed similar sounding song that is copyright free so uh, please don't sue us (laughs) so on a positive note i'm guessing the tennis reference relates to the topic of color that's correct sam today on zwittering on we're going to be discussing the science and chemistry behind color Hello, I'm Marie-Amory Faudet-Blees and I'm the Head of Education at the Salters Company and Institute in London. And I'm Samuel Dada, or Sam, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Cambridge in the Department of Chemistry. We know chemists can do everything. And in this episode, we'll be joined by two guests, a scientist at the top of their game on the subject who knows a lot more about it than us, and a student also on the subject who wants to learn how to address these issues In every episode, we will do our best to introduce the main topic under discussion and then pass over to an expert and a student to have a conversation about the past, present and future of the science at the heart of it. And as tempting as it might be for the two of us to just sit and nod along, we'll be joining in with the conversation as well. We are going to be breaking things down for you so you can understand it. So at the risk of embarrassing ourselves, at the end of each episode, we are going to be quizzed by the experts on the key takeaway from the conversations in the expert test. The expert test. Yes, we will, Sam. And even though I really hated exams at school, we will be keeping score every week and throughout the whole series to see who out of the two of us will be the winner of the expert test. Colour is a vital part of how humans experience the world, from light scattering by tiny particles in the air, causing the sky to look blue, to light harvesting chlorophyll that makes plants green. This episode of Zwittering On will bring you all things colour. And we'll ask a few questions along the way, like, what is colour? Where does colour in nature arise from? What is so special about the chemical structures that cause colour? How do humans experience colour? And how have humans leveraged our understanding and knowledge about the chemical structures to make our own dyes and paints? Well, I guess you've heard of the phrase blue sky thinking, right? Well, in fact, it is said so often now in lots of industries and across different sectors. And it basically means activity that generates completely new ideas. So, Sam, I'm sure you know the origin of this phrase. I really hope this comes up in the The expert expert test. test. 
Yes, Mariama. Um, I do know the answer. Born in 1820, John Tyndall in 1869 conducted experiments with a glass tube about 36 inches long and 3 inches in diameter, into which he introduced vapours. When he illuminated them with a strong condensed beam from an electrical lamp, they quote-unquote decomposed. And he now had a tube filled with fine particles. Okay, okay. So we've got Tyndall, we've got 1869, we've got a glass tube, and we've got vapours. That's right. Okay, I'm with you. Sometimes these particles were so small Mm -hmm. that they were actually literally smaller than the wavelength of light. Okay, wow. So when Tyndall plunged the room into darkness and focused his powerful beam of light on the tube, a sky blue cloud now filled the tube. With this dramatic, easily repeatable experiment, he was able to understand why the sky was blue. And today we now know that the sky is blue, more so due to Rayleigh scattering um, rather than Tyndall's earlier discovery. And this is really due to the particle size. Now, Sam, we could talk about why the sky is blue all day long, but I think we've got quite a few things coming up in this episode. How about we really step things up now? And move on to the bit we call the conversation, where we're joined by an expert and a student to help us answer questions. We then ask the expert to sum up the topic in just one minute during something we call the breakdown to help us make sense of it all. Before we hear again from our guest expert, who will then be asking us questions in the the expert expert test. test. It is absolutely brilliant to be joined by our guest expert today, Professor Stephen Westland from the University of Leeds, who specialises in colour science. Steve, very warm welcome to you. Thank you very much for inviting me today. It's lovely to have you on Zwittering On. We're also joined by William Terry Wright, who is currently studying a PhD at the University of Bristol in synthetic chemistry. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me back. We hear you might have some questions for Steve. Yes, I do have a few questions. My first question is, would you be able to tell us a little bit about your research? Thank you, Will. So my research is quite broad because my definition of colour science is is quite a broad definition. It includes the colour of materials and their effect on people, for example. So we're interested in something called colour formulation, which is how people decide which dyes and which pigments can be used in, say, plastics or paints to make a particular colour. That's a commercial problem that companies have. But we're also interested in the effect of colour on people's, people's emotions, um, the use of lighting in, in buildings. Um, so it's a really sort of broad area that we work in. And... How did you get into that? Because I'll be honest, it sounds like a really interesting job. It it is a really interesting job, honestly. Um, So when I was 18, I liked chemistry. So I applied to several universities to do chemistry. But for some reason, I saw one that was colour chemistry and I applied for it. And it just seemed to me slightly quirky. And something about it just attracted my personality, I think. So it was that one decision when I was 18 to choose to do colour chemistry 
as a degree in Leeds, which is a degree that doesn't even exist anymore, by the way. Um, it's another story. That changed my whole life because I've worked in colour for the last um, 40 years. Wow. But you look so young, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Looks can be deceptive. <laughs> and so can colour. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, before we get into the nitty-gritty of things, um, each episode, uh, we like to ease our guests into the whole episode by asking the question about their favourite element. So what's your favourite element? I'm going to say carbon, simply because it makes lots of connections, and I'm, I'm very good at doing that, connecting with other people or, or other elements. And also, I, it's, it's quite common, which I think also applies to me. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. I think I'm going to go for uh, sodium, because we're talking about colour. So uh, sodium has quite a nice yellowy-orange colour when it's burnt, um, and it also reacts quite uh, vigorously with water, which is always a, a fun reaction to do. I don't want to see you in the swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> and who would be your favourite fictional scientist, Steve? So in my case, I'm going to say Peter Parker, <gasps> Spider-Man. That's a great choice. Because actually in, in the movies, he's often portrayed as having the ability to fire webs from his body like a spider. But in the original Mar Marvel comics, he was a scientist and he actually invented the material that comes out of his shooters. When I was about eight... I became obsessed by this and I started trying to invent it myself by having sort of poly... <laughs> I had the idea of having heated polystyrene that would be fluid. Then when it came out, it would cool and solidify. Um, my experiments failed, <laughs> which is why I'm not Spider-Man. I'm, I'm a professor of colour science, but, but it's one of the first things that got me interested in chemistry. A very similar thing happens in 3D printers, so you were ahead of the curve, <laughs> really. <laughs> I mm, I might go a similar theme. I'm going to go for a superhero. I'm going to go for Bruce Banner um, because he was a professor of uh, um, nuclear physics, um, which is obviously very important in the world at the moment. Fantastic. Well, we'll hand back over to you, Will. Thank you very much. Um, we've heard a little bit, uh, a brief intro today um, about this topic. So my first question is, why is the sky blue? Well, we've already heard, I think, that it's to do with scattering. So scattering is one of the ways that matter interacts with light. Um, and when you have particles that are very small, um, the same way of light, or maybe a little bit smaller, they strongly scatter the light in lots of directions. But the important thing is they scatter some wavelengths more than others. So they scatter the short wavelength light, which is blue-violet, more than the other wavelengths. So imagine you have the light coming from the sun contains all the wavelengths, but some of that light is hitting particles on its way towards your eyes, which is shooting it to the side. It's bouncing up other particles and finding its way to your eyes. So it's only the short wavelength light which is being removed from the sun, which makes the sky look blue. It's the same reason why, paradoxically, the sun looks yellow. Wow. Because it's had the blue light removed. Fantastic. Um, and there's there's two different types of scattering. There's Riley scattering and the Tyndall effect. They're slightly different, am I right? Yeah, so Rayleigh scattering occurs when you have very, very small particles, like particles in the atmosphere. Um, and the scattering tends to be isotropic, meaning in all directions equally. But when you have, say, pigments, which are one of the things that we use to produce colour, 
um, they scatter in a slightly different way because the particles are much, much, much larger than the wavelength of light. And the particles scatter in one direction more than other directions, for example. Mm-hmm. So it's literally just to do with the size of the particles? It is, yeah. yes. We've heard a little bit today, and many people may be familiar with the term electromagnetic spectrum. Um, so what is the electromagnetic spectrum and how does it relate to colour and how we perceive colour? Well, it's a spectrum of energy that consists of many different wavelengths, very, very short wavelengths, um, things like X-rays and gamma rays, very, very long wavelengths, things like infrared and radio waves. But in the middle, we have this range of wavelengths between about 400 and 700 nanometers which we think of as being coloured from sort of, everyone's familiar with the Richard of York gave battle in vain, those seven colours we see in the rainbow. Um, But of course, they're not really coloured, they just look coloured to us. But that might be your next question. So so it's about how we're perceiving colour or how we're perceiving those wavelengths that go into our eye? Yeah, there's nothing about those wavelengths that makes them inherently coloured. Mm-hmm. You simply have energy, and the three, three things can vary. You can have increasing frequency, decreasing wavelength, or increasing photon size, and that's it. There's nothing about light at, say, 500 nanometers that makes it inherently green. It just looks green to us. If our visual systems were sensitive to other wavelengths, those wavelengths would look colored to us. So why... For example, for those who aren't in the studio, uh, we've got a very bright uh, purpley-pink light. So why can we see that as purpley-pink and then other colours might be blue, like the sky, or what? how, how are we perceiving that, that difference? So there's, there's a very big misunderstanding that many people have about colour. They think, for example, that something which is yellow is absorbing all the wavelengths apart from the yellow wavelengths, which have been reflected to our eyes. And that's the way people think colour works. And the reason they think that is because they think light is coloured. So they think if something's reflecting light which looks yellow, it must, must be those wavelengths that we associate with yellow. But if you look in this room, for example, every single thing in the room is reflecting all of the wavelengths of light to some extent. There's nothing here reflecting single wavelength light. It's just impossible. It's the way that matter and light interact. So why does something look yellow? It's not because it's reflecting the yellow wavelengths. It's because that spectral distribution of light that's yellow or or pinky purple or brown, whatever it is, that spectral distribution of light activates in our eyes our three classes of photoreceptors, we call cones, in such a pattern that it generates in our brains the perception of yellow or pinky purple, for example. Are they different cones or or are they the same cones that are being activated to different extents? So we have sort of cones that are generally more sensitive to longer wavelengths, some more sensitive to middle wavelengths, some more sensitive to short wavelengths. Um, They're not red, green and blue cones like people sometimes think. Um, But these three cones... If you look around the room now, everything that's been reflecting light, that light will be activating all three cones to some extent. Mm -hmm. But for example, if it reflects, if it activates the short wavelength cones more, it's likely to appear bluish. 
If it activates the longer wavelengths more, it's likely to appear reddish. If it activates all the cones to the same extent, it's likely to appear neutral or white. Right, yeah. Well, Steve, that's just absolutely blown my mind. I'm thinking, does this change over time? Does a five-year-old see the same in the same way as, say, a 95-year-old in terms of colour? In terms of the cones, absolutely. There's no evidence that they change over time. Uh, however, over time, the lens of the eye yellows. And so our colour perception does change and our sensitivity to colour does change as we get older. So there's almost a, a filter that, yeah. that kind of develops. Yeah. And on a similar vein, how, how, some people, many listeners, may suffer from colour blindness. What's going on? Is that a, a lack of a or reduced number of a certain cone or what's, what's happening? Colour blindness is really, really interesting. It's another misnomer. A lot of people think it means that people can't see colour, but of course they can. But they have trouble differentiating between colours, some colours. So, for example, imagine I see, see two colours side by side and it activates my medium and short wavelength cones the same, but I differentiate because the L cone is giving me, the long wavelength cone is giving me a different response. But imagine you will, imagine you don't have the L cone. You're missing that cone then those two colours, because they're activating the medium and short wavelength cones the same, would look the same to you. I see. So so it's a lack of a certain type so of cone? W one of the causes of colour blindness is when you, you're missing one of the cones. You only have two rather than three. Most commonly, you have then red-green colour blindness. You have trouble because normally you're missing the long or the me medium wavelength cone. You have trouble differentiating between colours in that part of the spectrum, I see. reds and greens. Mm -hmm. um, but bear in mind, if we in this room all have three cones, we would be colorblind to someone who has four. Imagine course, a color, yeah. imagine two colors that actually, to me, gave exactly the same cone responses so I can't tell them apart. But imagine if somebody else had a fourth cone, which gave a different response to those two distributions of light then they would see them as different colours and I would be colourblind to them. I'm not talking hypothetically. Um, in the last 20 years, it's been discovered that about 40 to 50% of the female population have got four cones. Really? They're tetrachromats wow. rather than trichromats. Um, it doesn't mean they've only recently developed that, by the way. They're not like superheroes. Um, <laughs> um, I beg to differ. <laughs> okay. yeah. Indeed. Um, but rather... They've probably had this for many hundreds of thousands of years. It's just we've only recently been able to um, tease it out, as it were. Does that apply to where, you know, there was a whole situation where people were seeing, you know, one colour as different? Does that also apply to it? Because there was this trend a while ago where there was a dress that went around where some people saw the dress as, you know, blue and black and some people saw it as white and gold. But it was the same dress. Absolutely. So there are, there are many reasons. If, if I say to you colour is something is, that is generated in our heads rather than being a physical property of the world, and you said to me, well, how do you, how do you know that, Steve? Give me some evidence for that. So one of the pieces of evidence I give is colour blindness. The fact that to, one person can say these two colours look different, another person might say they look the same. That's one piece of evidence. 
Another piece of evidence, Sam, is that in the case of the dress, some people saw it as, I think, um, blue and black, and somebody else as gold and white. The same thing. Now, that's not to do with cones. That's to do with the fact that after the cones receive the light, it goes to the back of the brain, the occipital lobe. It was cognitive. It's to do with how the brain interprets the signals. But all of these things are evidence that colour is generated by our brains in response to light. And if I just may, for a few more seconds, say two more things about that. More than 300 years ago, Isaac Newton famously said, the rays are not coloured. In other words, he understood that those wavelengths of light weren't actually coloured, but they had the ability to induce in us the sensation of colours. And before him, maybe 3,000 years ago, the Greek philosopher Empedocles actually said, if you removed all living beings from the universe, there would be no colour, no taste, no smell, because they're all Almost perception. like Schrodinger's cat. Yeah, but we've forgotten it, by and large. And in fact, it's often still taught in schools as if light is coloured, unfortunately. That's remarkable. Mm. So, um, taking a step back a little bit, Obviously, it would be wrong to say why why are certain objects coloured, but why do certain objects or certain pigments absorb some wavelengths more than others and hence to us appear coloured, whereas others absorb different wavelengths and appear a different colour? What's the physical property behind that material that means that it absorbs those wavelengths? So we've already talked about scattering. It's mm -hmm. one of the properties. Scattering actually is... is Two things affect scattering. One is particle size. The other thing is change in refractive index between air and the material. If you put a contact lens in water, it goes invisible because it's matched with, with the refractive index with the water. But in air, it's got a very different refractive index. You can see it. So pigments scatter light because they have a different refractive index compared to air, normally higher. And they also might scatter, for example, the shorter wavelengths more than the longer ones, or vice versa, depending on the particle size. But the second and maybe more important property of matter that produces colour is absorption. So we've, we've already talked about pigments. So we, we call the class of chemicals that produce colour, colorants. And there's two types, dyes and pigments. Dyes only absorb light. Pigments absorb and scatter. So pigments, wow. which are, for example, in a paint in a layer of polymer, the pigment particles exist as particles in the polymer with a different refractive index to the polymer, so they produce scattering. A dye, on the other hand, contains much, much smaller particles, often single molecules, that are literally ab absorbed into the textiles. There's, there's no refractive index to speak of. So dyes only absorb pigments, absorb and scatter. However, the absorption, what actually happens, um, there's actually a very famous book called The, the 15 Causes of Colour. Because we talked about absorption and scattering. 
You could also, also talk about incandescence. When something's heated, it emits colour, for example. There's also the sort of butterfly wings effect, you know, of oil on water. Yeah. Um, but let's get back to absorption, which is, for dyes and pigments, very, very important. What actually happens is light is absorbed by an electron that moves from a ground state to an excited state. Depending upon the difference in energy between the ground state and the excited state, it absorbs a specific photon of energy. And remember, the wavelengths of light have different photon sizes. So by changing the gap between the ground state and the excited state, you can actually change which wavelengths of light are absorbed. So a chemist can actually um, modify a molecule so that gap gets larger, for example, which means it will absorb more energy, which means shorter wavelength, or they can make that gap shorter, which means it will absorb smaller photons, i.e. longer wavelengths of light. Mm -hmm. But remember, it's not the light which is absorbed that we see, it's the light which is not absorbed. The light which is scattered by the pigments or the material in which it's based. For frank, imagine a white t-shirt, it reflects all the wavelengths of light to us. Mm -hmm. But when you add a yellow dye, it's absorbing very strongly in the short wavelength region. And it's the rest of the wavelengths which are reflected, which we see as yellow because of the way that they activate the cones in the eye. This is very random. A lot of people have like glow in the dark, um, like stickers and things like that. If the room's dark, how can they emit light? Because they can't be reflecting any or absorbing any. So what's going on? That's there? a great question. So people might wonder when this electron absorbs energy, what happens? It has to return to the ground state. Doesn't it re-emit it? Generally not. What happens is it's lost as heat, as vibration and rotation of the molecule, which is why people often say if you go outside wearing a black T-shirt or a white T-shirt on a sunny day, what happens? The black T-shirt will heat up more than the white T-shirt. Why? Because it's absorbing light. And what happens to that energy which is absorbed, it gets released effectively as heat, mm -hmm. right? It's very quick, instant, instantaneous process. But remember I said there were 15 causes of colour. Another one is fluorescence. Mm -hmm. So in fluorescence, it's the same thing. It absorbs light, but then it re-emits it as light. Mm -hmm. But because some of it's lost as heat, it emits it at a longer wavelength. But it's very quick. On the other hand, phosphorescence is the same sort of thing, but this time it absorbs it at one point and it might take four, five, six minutes for it to be released. Mm -hmm. And that's the glow-in-the-dark sticks. They're using phosphorescence. Mm -hmm. But it's all based on, on light absorption. It's, it's a very, very important mm -hmm. uh, way in which matter interacts with light. That's remarkable. So... In a very similar example, if you ever go into a room that has UV lights, they don't appear bright, but then your white T-shirt will will give off a, or will shine a lot, and that's uh, fluorescence, right? 
blood fluorescence because many white materials like cotton, um, impurities in the cotton, for example, or in the paper, absorb light in the blue region, in the short wavelength region. And that makes them look slightly yellowish. You can imagine something like an old T-shirt, which is slightly yellowish. Um, the way that manufacturers address that is they put inside the material a compound which is fluorescent, a compound which absorbs in the UV light, which is invisible to us, but re-emits it in the visible region, specifically in the blue region, which compensates for the blue light which has been absorbed by the impurities in, in the material. And that makes that balances again the spectrum to produce a spectrum which produces in us a sensation of white. I did not know that. I did not know that. Um, Steve, could you say a bit more about the commercial uses of colour without showing your allegiance to any particular company or organisation? Why would why do companies and organisations take such an interest in colour, and what's the effect of that on us, the consumers? So pretty much everything that we buy. Almost everything. Um, I mean, you could argue not perfume or music, for example. But the majority of physical things that we buy, um, many studies have shown that the reason people buy them are many, but colour is really, really, really vital. Um, people buy things because they like that colour, you know. So whether you're talking about plastics, paints cosmetics, foodstuffs, all of those things are coloured and all of those companies employ people who are think, doing things like working out which would be the best colour to either get people to buy them or make them work better, for example. It's not always about, you know, just selling things, it's making them work, work better. Also, how do you make those colours? I mentioned before about one of my topics, which is colour formulation, Say a company wants to make a particular colour for a client in paint, for example, and they've got, say, 25 pigments they can use. Which pigments should they use and in which proportions to make that colour? Um, and the list goes on and on. So I, I, I generally work with many, many companies. I won't name any. Um, <laughs> many companies in many fields. All of the fields I just mentioned I've, I've worked with. Um, so in actual fact, it's, it's a big problem in the UK so I mentioned earlier that my degree, colour chemistry, doesn't exist anymore. There's currently no undergraduate training in the UK for colour chemists. Yet these companies still exist. And I can tell you, they're always saying to me, Steve, how can we get more colour chemists? We don't have anyone who, who knows about this stuff. So it's a, it's a sort of a, a training gap, if you like, in the UK. Mm. If there's any listeners out there who are particularly enjoying this episode then I'm sure that's a perfect career opportunity. Absolutely. I've just got one last question, and that's what makes you excited about your research and where do you see the future of colour research going? It, it's an incredibly exciting field. Um, the thing I do like about it is you never know what problem is going to come to your inbox next. It could be from any aspect of, of hum, human life. Um, in terms of the future... There are many different futures. So one of the things that really concerns people at the moment, for example, is sustainability. Um, so one of the problems with us using dyes and pigments is um, the actual coloration process. For example, how you get those dyes into fabrics 
um, it uses a lot of energy mm. and it uses a lot of clean water. Yes. And after that, you have a lot of dirty water. Mm. And what you do with that, in the past, it's pumped into rivers. In some countries, it still is. So coloration is sort of a dirty word a little bit. Mm. So one of the really exciting things in our school that we're doing a lot of work on is ways of producing color without using dyes. For example, I'll just give you one example. You could make a polymer that was inherently colored, that it had the chromophore, which is the chemical part which produces the conjugation, often benzene rings and, and conj conjugated uh, chemicals. You need normally those structures in order to have the right um, gap between ground state and excited state for the electron to absorb in the visible region. So obviously you, you could design polymers that already had that chromophore built into their structure, into, mm. into the monomer. Then you'd have polymers which are inherently coloured. You wouldn't have to waste energy or water in dyeing them. And also they couldn't lose their colour. You know, you, could, you wouldn't have the problem again of having putting the red socks in with the, the whitewash because, they, because the polymer would literally be coloured. Unless you had depolymerization, which is relatively unlikely, it'd be incredibly stable to heat and, um, and washing, for example. So, that, you know, that, so sustainable ways of producing colour, often it's based on looking to see what happens in the natural world. Because I, mean, I mentioned there's 15 different ways of producing colour all of those ways occur in the natural world. So often we can be inspired by that to think of new ways of, of generating colour which doesn't involve traditional high-energy, high-water usage. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I knew that genes were particularly bad for um, water waste, but I, I didn't realise why. So, yeah. That's yeah, literally a single pair of genes to produce them, it, it literally uses hundreds of litres of water, and not just any water, clean water. Which is a finite resource in indeed. Some, yeah. indeed. some parts of the world. Yeah. Steve, that was incredible. I think you've laid down the gauntlet there of things we can do to engage in the conversation about colour science and think about how we can contribute, even in our small way, uh, to a more sustainable world, whether that's through reading up more or for the young chemists out there, as Will said, thinking about becoming colour scientists uh, and colour chemists of the future. So now we get to the part of the podcast, Steve, where we ask you to break down all the incredible stuff, the incredible knowledge you've shared um, into a minute, a summary from you, our expert uh, against the clock, uh, which Sam and I will listen to uh, so we can prepare ourselves for what we know is coming next. The expert, expert test. So, Steve, over to you. Um, well, what we've talked about today is is the way that um, light looks coloured to us um, and the way in which chemicals absorb and scatter that light um, produces all the colours that we see um, in, in, the, in the world around us. And we differentiate between dyes and pigments, of course, um, dyes being things that only absorb, pigments being things that absorb and scatter. We also spoke about the future 
of this whole area. One of the things which is important there is to find new ways of producing colour in materials using, for example, inherently coloured polymers or even nanomaterials, for example, are being used. And these things can produce colour in a way which is sustainable for the future because we all want colour in our lives, but we don't want the cost, the sustain, either the economic cost or the cost on the environment. Steve, thank you for that brilliant breakdown. I think we've got so much from this podcast episode. I can't, I can't tell you. Now it's time for Steve, our fabulous expert, to start asking us the questions in the, the expert, expert test. test. Okay, I'm feeling pretty confident this week, Sam. Mm. I don't know about you. Me too. Okay, well, let's let's well, Will. <laughs> We trust you to be impartial Absolutely. and to write the correct scores down. <laughs> Steve, I, if I would. <laughs> I think we're ready. We're ready for your questions. Well, I've, I've got three questions. Um, but they start off easy and get harder. Oh, my goodness. So I'm going to start with the easy one first. The first one is what is the main mechanism by which dyes absorb light? By the way, that's the easy one. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Was that, start, the easy start, one? Was, was, that, was that the easy one? Is it like the electrons basically get excited and then they move to a different energy state? Absolutely. That's a point for it's, we, we call it electronic transition. Oh, okay. Electronic transition. Okay, so maybe I'm not feeling so confident anymore. <laughs> still time. There's still time. There's still time. So in addition to electronic transition, absorption, and not counting scattering, because we spoke about that a lot. What other ways can materials produce colour that we spoke about today? There's fluorescence and phosphorescence. Do I get that point, Steve? Just about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll take it. It's one all. I will give the point for that. Yeah. Um, Thank you. So, though they also involve, of course, absorption. So, yes. um, okay. And I was rather hoping you might say incandescence, oh, cool. which is where you yes. heat something, for example. Yes, and it changes colour. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Um, so tungsten light bulbs, for example, we've heated our, our homes for most of the 20th century using light bulbs, which, which glow, I emit heat when you pass... Um, electricity through a thin uh, tungsten filament and as it heats it emits light. Anyway, this is the hardest question now. I I'm not going to ask you what is colour. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for that, Steve. I'm going to ask you a question which has a one-word answer. Okay. And it's, well, two words, I suppose. Oh. And it's, because I never ask my students what is colour. Mm -hmm. Instead, I say it's much more important to ask where is colour? In our minds. I'd say photoreceptors. In our minds. <gasps> in the brain. In the brain. Can yeah. exists in the brain? Yes. <laughs> that's I... that's the win for Sam again. <laughs> I think he did get 2-1, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, we'd love to have you back, but after that expert test, we may reconsider. <laughs> I would love to have Steve back. <laughs> I'm sure you would, Sam. 
Steve, that was absolutely brilliant. Um, I think we will be talking about this episode for many, many months. Um, you've really got us thinking about our relationship with the world and our perception of the world and also how the world has also been engineered for us to see colour, which is really quite, quite extraordinary. Thank you so much, Steve, for joining us and for being with us in the studio. It's been absolutely brilliant to have this conversation with you and to Will for asking such thought-provoking and challenging questions. Sam, it's a pleasure, as always, to have you here and to be co-presenting with you. (laughs) And thank you to you, our listeners, for joining us. Do make sure you tune in for the next episode of Zwittering On!, And if you want to learn more about our work, you can follow us on our socials or go to our website, saltersinstitute.org.